Hello, welcome back. We are talking about the 34th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year C, which is actually um, the last Sunday in the liturgical year. So next Sunday, with the first Sunday of Advent, we'll start the new liturgical year. So Happy New Year to you. I guess that's a little early. I should save that till next Sunday. Um, but the 34th Sunday in Ordinary Time is generally better known as the Feast of the Solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. It's sometimes also known um, simply as uh, the Feast of Christ the King. Um, and so our readings today are going to reflect that king, that um, theme, excuse me, of Jesus as King, of Christ the King. And so our gospel reading is from Luke, as we've been reading all through this year. Um, as we wrap up year C, we're going to move from reading Luke to uh, reading Matthew. We're going to cycle back to year A. So we'll start reading Matthew in the coming weeks. But anyways, we're going to get our last reading here from Luke for year C. It's our gospel, Luke 23 chapter chapter 23, verses 35 through 43. So we'll begin as usual um, by reading the gospel together. The ruler sneered at Jesus and said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the chosen one, the Christ of God. Even the soldiers jeered at him as they approached to offer him wine. They called out, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Above him, there was an inscription that read, this is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, Have you no fear of God? For you are subject to the same condemnation. And indeed, we have been condemned justly, for the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes. But this man has done nothing criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied to him, Amen, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. So again, that's the gospel from Luke chapter 23, verses 35 through 43. And as typical, the other readings in the psalm that we have um, for this Sunday are going to help us to understand what the church is trying to get us um, to contemplate through these readings. And so we're going to look at Luke 23 through the eyes of 2 Samuel 5. And what the church is trying to show us is that the key to understanding Jesus's kingship is to understand a bit about the Davidic kingship, because the the kingship that Jesus takes on is the Davidic kingship, okay? So if you're somewhat familiar with the Bible story, you know that God creates man, man falls, um, and God decides to reconcile the world to himself by focusing on one man named Abraham. From that man, he's going to raise up a family. From that family, he's going to raise up a nation. And from that nation, or through that nation, he's going to draw the rest of the world to himself. And part of the plan of reconciling the world to himself through Israel is to raise up a monarch after God's own heart. And that monarch is David. But if you're familiar with the story, Uh, You also know that after David comes Solomon, after Solomon comes Rehoboam, and from uh, Solomon, from David and Solomon's wisdom and the height of their power, um, there's a drop-off, if you will. And so the Davidic kings um, drop into um, sinfulness, and they no longer um, pour out blessing upon the nations. This leads to the exile 
um, and the divided kingdom and essentially to other nations ruling over Israel, which is where the Jewish people are in the first century AD when Jesus comes on the scene. They're oppressed by the nation of Rome. There's no Davidic king. In fact, the Davidic bloodline is um, not entirely lost. Some scholars think it was preserved among the family of David, but it was not something that was to be uh, kind of um, spread about. You didn't want to go from the rooftop shouting that you were of the line of David because there were so many people, even like King Herod, who would have been um, intimidated by that. And so the Davidic bloodline was kind of kept underground. But nonetheless, um, there's no king over David, but God had made a covenant with David that David's sons would reign forever. And so Israel, the Jewish people, are awaiting the new son of David to come and take the throne. And we all know that that is Jesus. Um, But Jesus comes and he takes the throne in a really unexpected way. But if you're familiar with David and with David's son Solomon, you can start to see how Jesus actually fulfills the role of son of David and new Davidic king and the anointed one, the Christ. Okay, that's what Christ means. It's a title. It translates uh, the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. Okay, so for Jesus to be called the Christ refers to him as being um, a descendant, if you will, of David, the rightful heir of the throne of David. Okay, so that's a little bit of background for you, but now we're going to get into it a little bit more specifically. So let's read, um, actually, the first reading, 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 3. It'll help us understand our gospel. In those days, all the tribes of Israel came to David in Hebron and said, Here we are, your bone and your flesh. In days past, when Saul was our king, it was you who led the Israelites out and brought them back. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and shall be commander of Israel. When all the elders of Israel came to David in Hebron, King David made an agreement with them before the Lord, and they anointed him king of Israel. All right, so that's 2 Samuel 5 verses 1 through 3. That's from the New American Bible. The RSV translates things a little bit more literally, and that last sentence actually reads, King David made a covenant with them before the Lord, and they anointed him king of Israel. Okay, so the Israelites, all the 12 tribes of Israel come to David at Hebron. So Saul has been deposed at king and they decide we are going to make you our king. And the means by which they come into agreement as David over their king and themselves as subjects is to make a covenant. And the kind of covenant they make is really unique. They make a nuptial covenant with David. And why do I say they make a nuptial covenant with David? Well, because they come to him and they say, here we are, your bone and your flesh. And if that phrase sounds familiar to you, it's because it should. And it's because it's reminding you of Genesis 2, where Eve is created, Adam is awoken from his sleep, he sees Eve and he says, you are my bone and flesh. And in that uh, proclamation, he is making her his wife, okay? He's saying, you are my kin, which is what it means to make a covenant with someone. It's to make them your family. And so the Israelites are making a covenant. They're making, they're proclaiming themselves to be family with David, but they're making a particular kind of covenant with David. They're making a nuptial covenant with David. How does this relate to what Jesus does? Well, if you're familiar with the imagery on the cross, because here um, 
the church points us to Jesus's crucifixion as the means by which he shows himself to be a king. Okay, that in and of itself is fascinating. You might think that when we're celebrating the feast of Christ the King, we would have readings that focused on Jesus's glorious second coming, where um, everything is going to be subject to him, um, whereas St. Paul says, um, all will recognize Jesus as Lord, every knee shall bow, right? But that's not the readings that the church gives us. The readings point us to the crucifixion as the place and the time where Jesus mounts his throne. And he not only mounts his throne, but he makes this covenant or remakes this covenant, this new covenant in his blood, which is has these nuptial overtones similar to the covenant that David made with Israel and that Israel made with David. Okay, so what is the imagery that points to this? Jesus is on the cross. He's crucified. He dies on the cross. He goes to sleep in a manner of speaking. While he's asleep, his side is pierced. He's laid in the tomb. He rises from the dead and his tomb is in a garden, okay? When he comes out of the tomb, risen from the dead, a woman comes to find him. And this woman is Mary Magdalene, but this woman portrays really all of humanity. A woman comes to find him. Interestingly, she initially mistakes him from for the gardener, okay? Uh, but then Jesus speaks her name, when he speaks her name, she recognizes him immediately. And this reminds us of Adam and Eve, right? Adam is in the garden. He's alone. It's not good for him to be alone. God puts him to sleep. While he's asleep, out of his side, he brings forth his bride. Eve, Adam is awoken. And when he awakes, he names Eve. And when he names her, he claims her and he says, you are my bone and flesh, all right? And so in Jesus's act of self-giving on the cross, he is initiating a nuptial covenant in his very blood. And that began actually at the Last Supper, okay? But there's other um, ways that uh, the crucifixion, the Last Supper weave into our readings here and our theme of Jesus as Christ the King, okay? So at the Last Supper, Jesus actually fails to finish the Last Supper. He doesn't fail in the sense that he forgets or isn't able to. Theologians think it's very intentional. So he doesn't drink the last cup of the Passover, all right? Um, you can read about this in some of Scott Hahn's work on the fourth cup. So he doesn't drink the final cup of the Passover. And, and then, in fact, he says, he speaks language like, I shall not drink again until I come into my kingdom. And if you pay attention to the text, the next time that Jesus drinks in scripture is on the cross when the soldiers offer him vinegar, which is spoiled wine, right? He drinks of it and he is signaling when he drinks that he's come into his kingdom, Okay. But not only that, he's actually finally finished the new Passover meal because he himself is the new Passover lamb, all right? 
Um, what else is going on here? Well, I think to understand the beauty of the symbolism in the crucifixion and how we should see Jesus as the almighty king upon the cross, we also need to understand another episode from the Old Testament. This is at 1 Kings 1. It's not part of our readings today, but it's connected to the the idea of the Davidic monarch and Jesus being the new son of David, right? So at 1 Kings 1, we have the scene where Solomon, as the son of David, is anointed king. And um, interestingly, he actually leaves the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't go very far, but he goes down to the Gihon Spring, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And there, Nathan the priest and Zadok the prophet, I think it's the other way around, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, excuse me, um, anoint Solomon king over Israel. All right. And then they mount him, they place him on a mule and Solomon rides triumphantly back into Jerusalem where he mounts his throne as king. Okay. If this is sounding familiar, it's because it should, right? So Jesus, if you remember back to the early parts of the gospels, he goes to a river where John the Baptist baptizes him. And John the Baptist himself is a prophet. This is obvious to us because of his very role. But what people don't realize is that John the Baptist is also a priest. Okay, so in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we see John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, in the temple offering sacrifice. So that priestly pedigree is passed on generation to generation. And so John the Baptist has a priestly pedigree. And so John takes on the role of Nathan and Zadok in the Solomon scene, and he is the priest and the prophet who anoints Jesus as king. And it's interesting because it tells us the heavens are open, and we hear the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved son. And David's name, actually, in Hebrew means my beloved, okay, literally translated. So we almost have God the Father saying, this is my David, all right? Um, At this point, Jesus does not actually mount uh, a beast of burden and go up into Jerusalem. He will do that, but he's going to take a little hiatus. The first thing he's going to do is to go into the desert where he's going to be tempted three times by Satan. And we don't have time to get into the specifics, but the three times that Jesus is tempted uh, corresponds to the three commandments given by Moses to the Davidic king, to the future king of Israel. These are at Deuteronomy 17. And so if you're familiar with David, um, particularly Solomon, actually, David has a sin, but Solomon has a threefold sin. Solomon breaks the three commandments given for the future king of Israel in Deuteronomy 17. And then much of his ancestors, his successors, are going to break the law of Moses as well. And so the first thing that Jesus does upon his coronation as the new... uh, Uh, Mashiach, the new anointed one, is to go into the desert and he's going to obey the three laws of the Davidic king. So he's going to overcome Satan's temptations, which correspond to the three um, commandments to the Davidic king in Deuteronomy 17, all right? Then he's going to go about and he's going to proclaim the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's going to preach and he's going to teach. He's going to heal people and perform miracles. And then when the time is right, he's going to go to Jerusalem to mount his throne. And so he is 
placed upon a beast of burden, a donkey. He rides triumphantly into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, just like Solomon does. But a few days later, he mounts his throne. Uh, But his throne is not the throne that we would expect. The throne that Jesus mounts is the throne of the cross, right? But from the cross, Jesus actually reigns completely and victoriously. It's as if in failing to save himself, as the people in the gospel are jeering him for, by not saving himself, Jesus saves the world. And by um, humbling himself and taking on an appearance of one who is nothing more than a slave, Jesus actually takes for himself his proper throne and he overthrows the oppression of sin and Satan and establishes his kingdom forever, which is essentially the church here on earth and in heaven, right? And so we see from the cross the prophetic words of Pontius Pilate, where he wrote on that uh, block of wood, the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. We see those prophetic words of Pilate meant to be a jeer actually be truth and actually uh, come true and actually show us, even to this day when we look upon a crucifix, who our king is and who we should revere. Again, we always want to have personal application here for us from this gospel. I think our personal application um, can come from the good thief, right? Crucified next to our Lord. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What the bad thief fails to do is to have righteous fear of the king, righteous fear of our Lord. But it's not that this righteous fear leads us to, um, to, to, to back away from God. In fact, the righteous fear that the good thief has actually leads him to make this great request of our Lord. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus emphatically promises that it will be so. He says, amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. These are the words that we all hope to hear from our Lord. And we shall, if we remember him, as a king, and we follow him in his kingship, not in the way that seeks after glory, but in a way that seeks after uh, others, that seeks after God himself, that is willing to take on suffering and death, to put our own egos to death for the sake of love of other and love of our Lord. And with that, we close off the liturgical year, and we will be back next week to talk about the first Sunday of Advent. The new liturgical year, year A, will restart reading through the Gospel of Matthew. Thanks again so much for all your listening, um, and we will be back soon.